Hello from the newsroom of the Financial Times in London. I'm Katie Martin. Today we're looking at the alarming rise in obesity in the UK, where one in ten children are already obese when they start school at five, a rate that doubles by the age of ten or eleven. Darren Dodd discusses the latest measures to tackle the problem with Tim Rycroft of the Food and Drink Federation and Graham McGregor of the campaign group Action on Sugar and Salt. The government's been working up a plan to last a year or two and they've just updated it with new ideas on calorie labelling, on marketing restrictions, energy drinks, banning two-for-one offers on certain foods high in sugar, fat and salt. So let's start with you, Graham. Presumably you welcome the new approach from the government? These plans, certainly we would support them, but they're not nearly radical enough to really deal with the massive problem we have with obesity and unhealthy food being the biggest cause of death and disability in the UK. And Tim, what do industry think of the new round of plans? Well, we're a little puzzled that less than two years after the government announced what it has described as a world-leading plan to tackle childhood obesity, that they've felt the need to come forward with more proposals now because over those two years, industry has been very fully engaged with the challenges that we were set at that time. So it feels to us a bit surprising that we need to now look at additional measures when we're already making good progress towards the original challenges. Graeme, would you agree with Tim there that some progress no, has I been wouldn't. made? I mean, the point is that, that Theresa May's advisor, Fiona Hill, slashed the Cameron plan from 36 to 10 pages. It was a complete scandal at the time. And she's come back with some of the measures that were in the original plan by David Cameron. But as I said, these plans are not nearly strong enough to actually deal with the crisis we're in at the moment. Well, let's look at some specifics now. A lot of these ideas are still proposals, but one thing we do have actually in effect is the sugar tax or the soft drinks industry levy, given its proper title, which came into effect in April. This is ideally meant to pull in a billion pounds a year, which will be spent on sport in schools. So, Tim, what's industry's view on this? I mean, there has been lots of initiatives like reformulating products, etc. How has industry got to grips with the sugar tax? Is it coping well with it? Well, whereas reformulation has been shown to be effective in tackling obesity, there's no substantive evidence that these kind of taxes on soft drinks will actually make a difference to obesity. So we've opposed the soft drinks levy. Soft drinks industry had already made a commitment to reducing sugar by 20% by 2020 before the levy was announced. That process has, of course, accelerated as a result of the announcement. But consequently, the amount of money that's being raised by the levy has about halved from the original estimate. And although even my O-level economics will tell you that if you make something cost more, you're liable to sell less of it, the question is not sales, the question is consumption. The question is, will kids still be finding their calories from somewhere else if they're not getting them from soft drinks? Graham, what's your view? How does the UK sugar tax compare to other examples around the world? The soft drink levy has been incredibly successful. It's meant that most sugar-sweetened drinks now have been reduced from around 9.5%, which is the average of sugar content, to less than 5 to avoid the tax. That has resulted in a massive reduction in sugar intake in the UK, particularly amongst children, without them even realising only the red full-sugar Coca-Cola and the red Pepsi are left you know, the full sugar Pepsi, I mean, and all the others have come down. There's some smaller brands, but they don't really matter. So it's been an incredibly successful tax, which we need to spread out worldwide. We need to increase the levy, obviously on Coca-Cola and Pepsi-Cola, and rapidly increase it like tobacco taxes. And we need to reduce the threshold where they don't have to pay the tax. So instead of 5% sugar, it should come down to 4%, then 3%. Then, in fact, they'll have to pay the tax on any sugar-sweetened drink. 
And how does the UK approach differ to other approaches? Because there isn't kind of one size fits all when it comes well, to sugar as, taxes. As Tim was saying, what they rely on is the increase in price to reduce sales. Now, there's absolutely no doubt that has an effect. But I would agree with him that it's a small effect when you look at Mexico and France that have those sort of taxes. There's been about a 10% reduction in sales of full sugar sweetened drinks. So it has an effect, but it's not nearly as effective as the one combining with reformulation. So I think it was a brilliant move by the Treasury. Okay. Of course, the other effect is that it puts up prices for consumers. Yes. It hasn't put up the price, Tim. That's wrong. It's actually cheaper to make a drink with artificial sweeteners than it is with sugar. Sugar is expensive relative to many artificial sweeteners. In fact, if you look at supermarket Coca-Cola, the imitation Coca-Cola, it's come down in price with the sugar tax. Tim, so would you come back on that? Prices in the soft drink sector have gone up. Data from the grocer in the last month has shown that prices of soft drinks. As well, a that's whole not a bad up. thing. I mean, we don't want well, people... Well, it is if you're a consumer. No, I don't think so. It's like tobacco. I mean, we don't want people to consume sugar-sweetened drinks, and we don't want people to consume artificially-sweetened drinks, and we gradually need to screw down on it. And I'm sorry, but we have a crisis in the UK of millions of people dying of obesity, type 2 diabetes, cancer, blood pressure, and cholesterol. And the food industry's got to get organised. It can't go on being the biggest cause of death in the UK. In the world, companies like Nestle, Unilever realise this. They're rapidly changing, and so are the supermarkets. And I think the Food and Drink Federation really needs to get into a new world of we're supporting an entrepreneurial food industry that's going to beat this problem and focus on making healthy food. Graham, I have enormous respect for the work you've done on salt, but when you say that the food industry is the biggest cause of death in the world, you massively undermine your credibility because that's ridiculous. It isn't ridiculous. The foods that are high in fat, salt, sugar and low in vegetable and fruit are the biggest cause of death in the world. The global burden of disease funded by Bill Gates clearly shows that. There's no getting out of it. It's around 20 million deaths a year. Blood pressure is causing around 12 million. Cigarettes cause around 7 million. So I'm sorry, but you've got to get into the real world. Foods that are high in salt, fat, sugar and lack fruit and vegetables are now the biggest cause of premature death, the biggest cause of disability, and the biggest cause of death overall. I think people will hear that and think it's nonsense. Well, go and look at the papers nonsense. in The Lancet. I'm and sorry, just, go and look at the science. Well, to say the industry isn't engaged, come on, Graham, you know that's not true. Even you've acknowledged the role that the industry's played in salt reduction. Well, that's a small issue. You're questioning the facts that bad food, unhealthy food, isn't the biggest cause of death in the world. It is, I'm afraid. Let's go back onto some of the actual proposals, the new proposal, calorie labelling, for example. There's two things, isn't it? The labels on foods in the supermarket and calorie labels in cafes and stores. I mean, what does the industry think of that? Is it a bit of a tough ask? I think Graham would agree with me that the out-of-home sector, food consumed outside yeah. the home, which now accounts for about a quarter of all the calories we consume, yeah. has been quite late to this particular challenge, with a few notable and noble exceptions. So we definitely welcome the fact that there is a stronger focus on out-of-home in this second chapter of the obesity plan. Labelling, of course, is one of those areas that's currently governed by our relationship with the EU. It's an EU directive that requires us to put labels on in a particular way. The government has said they will look at what the options are once we leave the EU, mm. and we will always look at where the evidence leads us on what makes the most difference to consumers making good choices. Yeah. I mean, that's an interesting point you say about Brexit, because I guess it could work both ways, that 
outside Europe, the UK could set its own labelling, but then I guess it could mean there might be problems selling our foodstuffs abroad. What do campaigners think about that? Well, it's, you know, don't ask me about it, it's so complicated. I mean, clearly, at the moment, we're being sued by the Italian government for breaching trade practices on signpost labelling. The signpost labelling, which is the clearest and by far the best system in the world, is on many supermarket foods, some branded foods, unfortunately not a lot of others, as Tim's just said, out of home have lagged behind. And our view quite clearly is that all foods should be labelled signpost labelling. So we know the amount of calories, the amount of salt, the amount of fat, the amount of sugar, etc., and with red, yellow and green lights on. Now, obviously, catering establishments of less than 20 outlets or a single restaurant, you're not going to go mad. You've got to have some limit where you go. But I can't see any reason why... Consumers shouldn't know what's in the food they're eating. And I think it's morally wrong and indefensible for these companies not to let it be clear to their customers what they're eating. And it does cause a big shock when you see the amount of calories in some of these takeaway foods and the amount of salt. You know, if you go to the States, a Big Mac with chips and everything, it's incredible. I mean, it does make you think. And Tim, so the UK's in trouble with the Italians at the moment. What's that about? Well, there's, there's a long-standing infraction proceedings against the UK government in the EU because of the use of the traffic light labels, which are not currently, at least technically, allowed under the Food Information to Consumers Regulation, which governs food labelling in the EU. And the Italian government has taken a particular view about that. It's been rumbling in the background for a long time. I don't think it's an active case, but it does illustrate some of the challenges about food labelling. And although, as Graham has said, the majority, 60% of all the food in this country does carry that, for a number of manufacturers, it is a barrier to trade and others have a concern about the sort of arbitrary levels at which the red flag is set. What do you think of these, I guess, more simplistic suggestions, people like Jamie Oliver just literally showing how many spoonfuls of sugar are in a product? Is something like that ever likely to take off? Well, teaspoons is very difficult because it's not an agreed measure. You know, I have lots of teaspoons in my drawer at home and they're all different sizes. So it's not a great way of communicating to consumers exactly how much is in there. I mean, we look forward, of course, to Jamie being at the forefront of putting calorie labelling on his menus, which he currently doesn't do. Oh, really? He doesn't do that? Right. Well, let's turn now to kind of marketing and advertising restrictions. So perhaps, Tim, start with you again, because you were quite critical of this in the FT recently. What's your basic objection? Well, marketing and promotions are two of the mechanisms that underpin the very healthy, successful, innovative market for food and drink that we have in this country. And our concern is that there may be some significant unintended consequences of restricting them. So if you change your product to make it healthier, but you still can't advertise it to consumers, how are we going to signpost to consumers that they should take the healthier option? You know, there's a whole range of concerns about advertising and promotions they underpin things like challenger brands being able to take on dominant brands they enable new products to be brought to market and brought to consumers attention so in many ways they are fundamental to a successful market and the amazing array of food that we have in this country that consumers appreciate Graham, what do you think? Well, I take a slightly different view. I mean, advertising and marketing and promoting foods to young children is, in my view, immoral. I mean, they don't have the judgment. You can always argue that an adult can take on board the fact it's not healthy, but how can a child do that? It's exactly the same as tobacco. I'm talking about unhealthy food, not healthy, unhealthy food, which we have clear definitions for. 
that that should not be marketed or promoted in any way whatsoever. It's a bigger cause of death than tobacco. Why do we ban tobacco advertising and not this? What we should allow is healthy food to be advertised, marketed and promoted. Now, that isn't going to come in overnight. I mean, we're realists, you know, you're not going to ban all marketing. But that's our aim and it will come in. I mean, I guarantee you within 10 years' time, unhealthy food will not be marketed or promoted in the UK. Now, in the meantime, you slowly screw it down. And this is what's happening and I'm very pleased to see it. I don't think it's enough action, but I think it's at least a start and we need to have more. I think the food industry bears a moral responsibility to stop doing it. So, I mean, Ofcom already says we have some of the tightest restrictions on advertising to children on food in the world. They were extended only a year ago to encompass online, where children are spending more of their time now. And all the marketing restrictions we have in this country, whether it be for alcohol or for gambling, are based on audience profile. So you cannot advertise to predominantly children's audiences or on children's channels any of these foods. But if you end up introducing something like a watershed, which is one of the things that's being talked about, that means that you can't advertise olive oil on the History Channel because olive oil is high in fat. And well, that isn't true. I'm sorry. It's olive oil is not then. is not defined as unhealthy. It's in the HFSS definition. Well, so it shouldn't be. We need so there are bacon. there. You can come up with some examples like this. Look, any definition, obviously at the edge, is going to have examples that make it look ridiculous. But if you look at the bulk of the foods that are high in fat, salt, and sugar, even you would agree they're unhealthy. Now there are certain ones where we have to look again, and I I don't disagree with you. We we need to look at this very carefully, and that is something the government should be doing, or Public Health England should be doing, because I think it's ridiculous to ban the marketing of olive oil or ban the marketing of rapeseed oil or canola oil because it's high in fat and butter comes on the equivocal thing where it's a animal fat which is very high in saturated fat so I think that's something we could discuss at a later date. And Tim, going forward, we have a new uh, Secretary of State for Health, Matt Hancock. How do you see things developing under him? Well, of course, early days for him in the Department of Health, but there's going to be a consultation now on these advertising and promotional proposals. We, of course, and Graham, no doubt, also will respond to that. I think there are some very significant arguments as to why advertising and promotions are areas that the government needs to be careful about stepping into because of the unintended consequences that we talked about. We shall see where Matt Hancock lies. We don't yet know where his priorities will lie. Graham, how do you see things going forward? Well, we'll wait and see. I don't think the Department of Health has a very good record under the Conservatives since they took over in 2010 in promoting really healthy eating. We had a very successful salt reduction programme, which is now on hold as a result of the Department of Health messing around. So I'm not that impressed, but I would hope that he really will pull his finger out and get organised, because we need to, you know, and we've got a crisis and we've got to do something about it. And I mean, I would point out we're doing better than any, any other country in the world in terms of obesity. And I think I'd congratulate particular supermarkets who've played a leading role in this and some of the branded companies that have as well. Okay, well, there's clearly a lot more debate to be had on this very important issue, which we'll return to in future episodes of FT News. In the meantime, thanks to our guests, Tim and Graham, and remind that you can find all of FT's health journalism at ft.com health, and you can sign up for our weekly FT Health newsletter. That was Darren Dodd talking to Tim Rycroft of the Food and Drink Federation and Graham McGregor of the campaign group Action on Sugar and Salt. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to take a look at our latest subscriber offer, which you can find at ft.com offer50.
Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com.